Good morning, all. Good afternoon or good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Welcome to Under the Wire, your home for censored and suppressed information about vaccination and health. Tonight, we have a very, very special guest. I'm very um, honored that she has chosen to come onto the show tonight with us. Um, she's someone I've spoken with before. She was kind enough to be in one of the Vaxxed Q&A sessions uh, when we did the first Vax tour. And uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff is her name, and she has recently published both an article on the uh, COVID vaccination, COVID genetic modification device, as I prefer to call it. And um, a, a new book of hers is coming out on July 22nd uh, about glyphosate, which is one of the topics that she has been studying for, I believe, 12 years. So without further ado, I would like to welcome uh, Dr. Stephanie Seneff to the show. How are you? <laughs> Are you I'm doing great. Me? Thank okay, you. Okay, fantastic. That's great. Thank you so much. So um, I wanted to start tonight with talking about your recent article, uh, Worse Than, it's called Worse Than the Disease, Reviewing Some Possible Unintended Consequences of the mRNA Vaccines Against COVID-19. Um, I've only just finished reading this myself. I recommend it to anyone who is um, looking into this issue. So let's talk about um, how this paper came about and why you decided to do this. Well, I've always been very worried about vaccines in general. Of course, I was part of the Vaxxed uh, experience. And so I do believe the vaccines are contributing to autism. And autism has been the, the disease I've really, really focused on. In the process, I've discovered many, many other diseases that are being affected by the vaccines, working together with glyphosate, the active ingredient in Roundup, the herbicide, which is pervasive in our environment. Both of them together are a very deadly combination to cause disease. And the United States has a huge healthcare problem. You know, we can't, costs are just astronomical, results are not good, and government is clueless as to why this is happening. And I think it's a combination of all these vaccines and and the herbicides, the pests, the insecticides, the fungicides, all the different exposures that we're subjected to all the time in this country, we need to recognize, we need to change our ways. And, and I think COVID-19 is a direct consequence of our exposure to glyphosate and other chemicals. I think that these chemicals weaken your innate immune system, and this results in a sensitivity to the virus that makes people get sick. So I think people who um, eat well, get plenty of sunlight, are not susceptible to COVID-19, don't need to worry at all. And yet the government has kind of instilled this sense of terror in the in the in the uh, population, to the point where they're willing to be you know ex uh, subjects to genetic experiments with a novel technology that has not been nearly adequately studied. Long term, you know, consequences are unknown. I mean, there's just so many unknowns about this technology. It's clear that it's very novel and unique and and revolutionary. But you know, the question is, is it safe? And so I've always been nervous about any vaccine. I never have gotten a flu shot and I never get the flu. I've, I have a, it's been decades since I had the flu. I don't worry about these diseases because my, my immune system is strong. And the problem is when your innate immune system is weak, then your adaptive immune system needs to take over. And that means you need to make antibodies and antibodies can cause autoimmune disease. So you really don't want to go that path. But the purpose of the vaccine is to make sure you make antibodies. Even if you have a healthy immune system, it goes right past the immune system, inject this toxic load into your muscle that causes the muscle cells to just 
be very, very upset. I mean, they're being, you know, they're, they're hitting, getting hit with this experience they've never seen before. And they call, you know, they call out the alarm and the immune cells come into the muscle, pick up that messenger RNA vaccine, which is these little, you know, lipid pellets that contain very, very abnormal form of RNA. Uh, and even a very abnormal, it, that produces an abnormal form of the, pro, of the protein that's producing the protein, the spike protein, which is the protein that I, is the coat protein, main coat protein of the virus. And they want you to make antibodies to spike protein. So they've been obsessed with this idea that you've got to make those antibodies. And they know from studying biology, they know exactly how to make that happen. And they're very pleased with themselves because they've designed this vaccine perfectly to go straight to the spleen and into these you know, germinal centers in the spleen and start spewing out all these uh, prion proteins that then cause the, uh, those uh, immune cells that are responsible for making the antibodies. They get in there and they perfect their antibodies and make a perfect antibody to that spike protein. That's the goal. It's a single-minded goal with blinders on for whatever else might happen. That is such an important point, and it's something that people don't really understand, I think, and that is that vaccines, not just these vaccines, but all vaccines, have one end point, and that is to create antibodies to the specific disease that you are being vaccinated against. And we know, and we've always known, that antibodies don't equal immunity. They do equal exposure. Right. So everyone who has been vaccinated is being exposed to something, but the creation of antibodies do not necessarily indicate that you are immune to something. Um, so everyone is getting exposed to this. Um, and and. I want to talk about the um, the way in which these shots were developed, the fact that they were done so quickly. I'm going to show a slide which is out of your paper, which talks about the unprecedented nature of these vaccines. If you can talk about the three types of vaccines, because this is something I'd never heard of before. Right. I, well, let's see. The unprecedented. Let's see. I have it right here. Oh, sorry. Um, it's hard to read on it. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> basically <clears throat> it's simple, complex. I was thinking of the word simple, complex and unprecedented. Yeah, that's yeah. the word simple, complex and unprecedented. And this is an unprecedented vaccine because it's so um, different from anything they've done before. And uh, it's not, you know, in fact, it can't be called a vaccine because a vaccine is supposed to be sort of some natural virus that's been weakened in some way in order to get you to produce antibodies to that virus. But this is long past that. And they've just um, designed this RNA. They have this single strand RNA, which is what the virus carries inside its coat. But the, vi the vaccine doesn't have the actual protein. Normally that RNA would be inside a protein coat, which would be the spike protein. But with the vaccine, it's inside a lipid coat, and they very carefully designed that lipid membrane. They're making it look like an LDL particle so that all the cells will take it up. That's another thing is the virus is taken up by the cells that have this ACE2 receptor. It's, it's targeted for the ACE2 receptor. And, and the... the um, Oh, sorry. Vaccine. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, mm -hmm. if the cells take up this RNA, is there a potential that it can actually cause um, the cells to change our own native genetic structure, our genetic genetic code? Yes. Well, that's the really interesting thing about it. And that was really uh, interesting research for me to figure that part out. I've learned a huge amount about these vaccines, of course, since I started studying them. It was a six-month process to get this paper published, and um, really fascinating what we found, and also terrifying. 
but the, um, you know, and they say, well, it's RNA and therefore it can't go into your genome. You know, it's different from a DNA-based vaccine. The other vaccines, actually, those DNA vector vaccines are already a DNA version of the RNA that's in the virus. So that's already abnormal just by virtue of being DNA. Those va uh, vaccines, by the way, are no better. That's a, a DNA vector, which is actually an adenovirus, which is a kind of a virus that causes colds. They've stuck into the adenovirus genome uh, a segment that codes for that spike protein. So that's a very abnormal adenovirus. And then it's grown in a culture with human cells that are cancer cells. I mean, there's a lot of stuff wrong with those. If you want to say, well, I won't get the message RNA vaccine, I'll get the other one. I wouldn't recommend that either. So, But the message RNA vaccine is this lipid code. It's made to look like an LDL particle. Many, many cells can take it out, up, including cells that wouldn't normally take up the virus because they wouldn't have those H2 receptors. And the muscle cells in particular are the ones that take it up because it's, it's, it's injected into the muscle past all the mucosal barriers. Usually you would have mucosal barriers respond. Like if you breathe in the virus and you've got a strong immune system, your immune cells in your lungs just clean it up right away and nothing happens. You don't get sick. But if your immune cells are sick and they could be sick because you've been breathing in things like glyphosate because there's a lot of glyphosate in the air these days because of the biofuels. I think. And, and in fact, Brazil found mm -hmm. glyphosate in the air particles, nanoparticles in the air in the city in a study. They found glyphosate in there. So if you're breathing glyphosate, you're going to hurt your lungs immune system. And I think that's a reason why the countries that use a lot of glyphosate are having really having a hard time controlling COVID-19. So that's a big sidetrack. But this but yes. this vaccine, you know, it's got these RNA particles. And they've been, they've got this PEG stuck in there, which is polyethylene glycol. That's to stabilize the RNA. Try to, the whole game is, okay, we can't let the immune cells get at this RNA. If you just injected the RNA into the muscle, immune cells would come in right away. In fact, there would just be enzymes in the blood or in the system that would just wipe it out right away. The RNA is very, very fragile. That's why they have to keep it also at a really cold temperature. And it's kind of ridiculous the way you have to transport it and keep it cold all the time. That seems scary too, because it could break down into smaller particles and who knows what that would do. But aside from that, you've got this you know, lipid-like particle, looks like an LDL particle. All the cells can take it up through their standard methods of endocytosis, which you know just about any cell has, because normally you're getting your supply of cholesterol and lipids from these LDL particles. And so um, the cell happily takes this thing up, but it turns out its, its lipids have been designed to be positively charged. It has this positively charged um, what called cationic lipid in the membrane, which is extremely unusual. I mean, LDL particles are negatively charged and the membrane hates positively charged lipids. That's gonna really cause a mess on the membrane of the muscle cells. So they're gonna scream. They're gonna start screaming to the immune system, come help me. I've got a problem here. I don't understand this, this is what's going on. Right. And meanwhile, they're taking this stuff in and start making this spike protein. It's all set up to look like a human protein ready, human RNA molecule ready to go to just churn out spike proteins. And they've, re and they've implemented a version of the RNA that's also not normal. They've done lots of manipulations to that RNA. It's no longer a normal spike protein RNA from the virus, and nor is it a normal human protein, but it's trying to look like a normal human protein that's going to churn out lots and lots of spike protein. They've so, redesigned the RNA to be able to make a lot of protein. So everything about this shot is unnatural, and our bodies don't really know how to deal with this. And some of the reactions that we're seeing are the result of this inability for our bodies to actually get rid of what's been injected. And um, there's also the issue you mentioned in your paper of things like Sincitin-1, if I'm pronouncing that right, um, which is a 
it, it looks very much like. Is it homologous with? Is that the term homologous? Yes, with homologous the, with. Yeah. It, it, it's a fusion protein. It has the same structure as a fusion protein, and this is a fusion protein. Mm-hmm. The spike protein is. And so you can have uh, antibodies that can become autoantibodies through something called structural similarity. You know, the fact checkers will say, well, it's completely different, so don't worry about that. But, you know, it's structurally similar, and that can cause, you can get the antibodies to mistake a protein that doesn't have this exactly or similar sequence, but has a structural similarity. That can cause um, antibodies to uh, start attacking that protein. So there's a real worry, I think, that it could attack syncytin. And also, we got off track there because it can go into the DNA. I kind of went, wandered <laughs> off on a tangent, didn't, get, didn't answer your question. Uh, okay. This was something we found really, really fascinating. And it's hard to know which parts to talk about first because there's so many that are amazing. But just, to, you know, I wanted to give you the perspective that the RNA has been manipulated and that it's hard to break down and that it turns out lots of protein. These are all very abnormal. And then uh, the other thing is that it can get converted to DNA, even though they deny that. And in fact, immune cells that are under stress turn on the protein that converts RNA to DNA. So you're ready to go with that. The immune cells are under stress because they've got this strange, you know, RNA molecule spewing out this protein and they don't know what to do with it. And the stress causes them to upregulate, to produce this, these lines and signs, which are these really fascinating segments of, the, of, the, of our genome. There's like 20% of the genome, something like that, maybe 17% is made up of these lines and signs. And those things are able to take RNA, turn it into DNA and put it into the genome. So that's what you need, reverse transcription that's caused, ca- called. Reverse yep. transcriptase is the enzyme. And, and these retroviruses that Judy Mikrovitz likes to talk about, those have that reverse transcriptase. That's sort of their specialty because they work by converting their own RNA into DNA, integrating it into the human genome. They totally know how to do that. So if you've got retroviruses, which I think most people do, <laughs> in your body, they're ready to go to turn this RNA into DNA. Plus, you've got these lines and signs that are going to be produced by these uh, immune cells that are upset because they're seeing this really strange thing they never saw before. And they can do it too. And then the worst thing is the sperm do it. And sperm do it very well. Sperm are quite fascinating because I think they are really uh, agents of evolution. They're they're really uh, unusual uh, cells. And they actually have and there was an amazing paper that we that we referenced in our paper. I recommend people to look that up and read it about the sperm and how they can take in. And they specifically talked about foreign RNA, which is what this is, taking it in, converting it to DNA, putting it into little pellets. These are called plasmids, releasing those plasmids into the medium. And this actually happens during fertilization. So you get the fertilized egg and all these sperm, they're all releasing these plasmids. The fertilized egg actually takes them up. And these plasmids contain these nuggets of foreign RNA that then become a part of the fetus. And the fetus maintains those throughout its development all the way to uh, its adult life and it, it passes them on to its children. It can pass them on to its children. So you can have just these plasmids, which are extra, extra uh, genomic DNA packets, little, little pellets of DNA that can be shipped all around and, and spread all around and that can reproduce themselves. So they are, that's one step away from integrating into the genome, but those plasmids can also become integrated. And what so you could end up with a person be? having a spike. Sorry. What can the results be? What 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 is the issue yeah. with that? Well, what we're predicting, and this has actually been evidence of something similar with cows, is that um, a sperm, if if a sperm is a, has this uh, messenger RNA from the vaccine, um, delivers it to the egg, fertilized egg, the egg then becomes a fetus which has this protein as part of itself. It thinks this is self. It won't make any kind of antibodies to it because it's a self protein according to its training. And then that infant, when it's born, 
will be a super spreader. If they catch the virus, they won't be able to fight it off and they'll, they'll carry, and they might not even react to it, which might mean they don't even get sick. I'm not sure, but um, I'm not sure how they will respond to the virus, but yeah. they will be able to, uh, to carry it forever because they won't be able to fight it off and they'll be a super spreader. And, um, and then they can also pass that information on down to their offspring. So a generation of COVID Marys, basically. Um, and we don't know what the outcome is because there are, this has never been really studied. The, the vaccine or the shot has actually been released without undergoing even the basic uh, safety and efficacy studies that all vaccines um, are supposed to undergo. Now, you discussed this about the, um, I've forgotten the term already for this uh, this this type of shot, unprecedented shot. Yes. It should take 12 years to produce. Right. And, and then there's a very and, low and um, rate of success. Exactly. 2%. In the end, the analysis said that 12 years, 2% would success rate, meaning that 98% of the ideas would be thrown out. And this one was like less than a year, you know, in just warp speed is what mm -hmm. they said. Yeah. And then we're so ready for it because everyone's got the fear of God. I mean, we're so terrified of this virus that people are willing to just hit me up. You know, I just I'm shocked at the number of people. I'm glad there are quite a few people in the United States that are resisting. We're reaching a point now where they can't give these vaccines away because people are saying, no, the remaining people who haven't been vaccinated don't want it. Many of them. Thank goodness. And um which is great. Some people have gotten informed, but I can't believe how many people have been excited to get the vaccine, lining up, trying to cut the line. I mean, I know people who've tried to cut the line. I can't wait to get this vaccine. And I'm so uh, astonished at their lack of concern about the possibilities of what this vaccine might do. Yeah, because they probably watch the media, the mainstream media, which only talks about benefits, doesn't even mention risks. Um, here in Australia, the state of Queensland has just announced that they're going to be abandoning the AstraZeneca shot. Um, and they're, we're importing now Moderna. Now, I don't remember exactly how many doses of AstraZeneca. We're a country of about 25 million people, and I think we bought over 60 million doses of the AstraZeneca shot, most of which have never been used because it's defective. So is there a warranty on that? Will our tax dollars be refunded? No, we're just going out and spending money on the Moderna shot. So we're going to have two of the messenger RNA vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, and um, we don't even know uh, how many people are willing to take it because the same as in the United States here in Australia, the clinics are empty um, and they are not able to even give them away because they are free here in Australia. So uh, it's pretty amazing to see what's happening. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to put you off on a tangent there. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, if I can ask, there is a question, and I know that you covered this briefly um, in your article. There was a question here. Uh, what can you share about shedding as there's been a lot of negative feedback? So mm -hmm. I'm concerned about going out amongst the vaccinated, um, and it's a real concern for me. So you do talk about that briefly in the paper. We do, yes. Mm -hmm. And that comes out of the prion story, which is absolutely astonishing. That's the part that perhaps worries me the most, the prion aspect. Um, mm -hmm. And that's related to shedding. And so it, it's really quite fascinating. I've been reading a lot about exosomes lately, and even... Um, you know, looking, it just, you know, there's people who are saying the viruses and exosomes are the same thing. You know, there's uh, Sally Fallon and Tom Cowan have a book that um, 
talks about that is quite fascinating, this concept that they're the same thing. And they're not, in my opinion, they're not the same thing, but there are many similarities. And, and exosomes are sort of messengers that cells send out among one another to communicate with each other about their stress or about their situation in general. It could be good news or bad news. But when a, um, when a cell gets stressed, uh, it will produce these exosomes and it will package into them things it needs to get rid of. And so what's happening, I think, is that, and I mentioned this about the, the um, germinal centers in the spleen. This is what's so interesting because studies have shown, we talk about it in our paper, exactly what happens to that shot. Once you inject it in the arm, it, it get, the muscle cells cry out the alarm, the immune cells come in, they pick, pick up the, uh, the messenger RNA as well as the spike protein. They make the spike protein, they go off into the lymph system. And that's why people get swollen lymph nodes because under their arm, which is an indicator of breast cancer, some of the people get, getting the vaccine are getting that experience. Yeah. It goes to the lymph node under the arm and from there it goes pretty much to the spleen. The spleen and then secondarily the liver, which is quite interesting. So it's probably traveling to the spleen through the lymph system and it might be the spleen is then sending it along to the liver, uh, along the bloodlines, I'm not sure. But the spleen gets a huge amount. It's like by far the highest concentration among the organs is in the spleen, which makes sense because the spleen is the center where uh, antibodies get produced. You know, there's like these germinal centers in the spleen. There are these dendritic cells in there that actually make that spike protein in, in response to the vaccine, display it on their surface, and then that brings in the, um, the, the, the antibody-producing cells which then take a look at that protein and they go through a process and they produce these beautiful antibodies that exactly match to that, uh, to that protein. You know, they can, they can hit that spike protein and that's of course the protective aspect of the, of the vaccine. But meanwhile, those uh, germinal centered dendritic cells are, are really on fire. They're like so stressed and they're inflamed. You know, they, they have all these problems, oxidative stress. And so under those conditions, um, those are uh, high risk conditions for prion disease. And what happens is that they upregulate a protein called alpha-synuclein. This protein is directly connected to Parkinson's disease. And, uh, and then they're making this alpha-synuclein, they're making all this spike protein. The spike protein is actually a prion-like protein. And I, I, I looked at it, it's quite amazing because it has five of these so-called glycine um, zipper. This glycine zipper, uh, you know, code is, is five places in these uh, spike proteins, which makes them a prion protein. For example, amyloid beta, which is associated with Alzheimer's disease, has four of these, of these glycine zippers. And those glycine zippers are, are an indicator of a protein that has the potential to misfold into one of these prion units that then kind of, it's like a seed of a crystal. So when you're producing lots and lots of this spike protein, because you've got this very abnormal RNA that's overproducing, and when, you, when the cell gets too much of a prion protein in its co concentration, it misfolds into these, into these seeds that then causes these crystals, which are going to make the immune cell very upset. And it puts, packages them up inside these units called exosomes and releases them. It just gets rid of them, just throw them out into the system because it, otherwise, you know, it, it needs to do that. It, it may be shutting down and killing itself at the same time, but it's basically trying to... Um, you know, get rid of get rid of this nasty, nasty stuff, which is this alpha synuclein combined with the spike protein in this prion protein seed that it then ships out along the vagus nerve uh, up to the brainstem. And this has been shown with um, Parkinson's disease is a well studied disease, and I'm interested in it because my mother died died of Parkinson's disease. Right. 
and it starts in the gut and it, it goes to the spleen. The spleen, these germinal centers, that's where you produce this, um, these, these pellets, these little um, exosomes that then travel along the vagus nerve to the brainstem and get into the substantia nigra and cause Parkinson's disease. So all of that's happening, but at the same time, those exosomes can also go elsewhere into the body, all over, you know, and they can go to the lungs and they can get released through the lungs. And that's been shown experimentally that the lungs actually release exosomes. So it doesn't take a lot of brain, you know, science to say if there's exosomes being produced by these very upset, you know, immune cells in the spleen, and those exosomes are getting into the lungs and they're getting breathed out. Well, that means somebody else can breathe them in. So I was fascinated when I started hearing stories from people, personal stories that I heard from my friends about their friends who had had these absolutely weird experiences by hanging out with vaccinated people. And at first you say, that just sounds crazy. How can that possibly be true? But this is a mechanism by which it could be true. So you've got a biologically plausible way in which people who have gotten these shots can possibly spread the spike protein or any other protein. And actually in the Pfizer pretrial um, material, they discuss this as a, uh, a potential way in which someone can spread this to a pregnant woman and this needs to be notified if it happens. So the manufacturer of one of these vaccines has actually discussed this, but when someone else talks about it, um, it's considered to be insane. Uh, there's also seems to be a link. Now, before I go into this, I would just love for you to explain what the prion disease, like mad cow disease, uh, could be, and how long does it normally take to develop one of these prion diseases after exposure, and is it possible that with the, the shot, this will be quicker? Yes, that's exactly what I'm suspecting. You know, as I said, Parkinson's is something I'm worried about. It, it has a genetic component. Mm. Um, my mother died when she was my age. So, you know, I don't, I don't have Parkinson's. I'm very happy about that. I don't want to get it. Right. <clears throat> but the then um, Parkinson's is a prion-like disease. The prion disease, the human one, is a CKD. Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease yeah. is, a, is the one, equivalent of mad cow. And that's this actual prion protein. It's called the prion protein. But there are many other proteins that are prion-like, and they're finding that most of these neurodegenerative diseases, ALS, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's disease, all of those are also based on these misfolded proteins, different ones for different diseases. Um, but And then you have these seed proteins that uh, trigger that whole process to take place. And it actually takes decades so it's a very slow process and it starts in the spleen at those germinal centers, that it, which is the center of action for these vaccines, the same place. And we talked about it in our paper. So you're, you're creating these germinal centers that are very stressed and it's the stress that makes them produce these prion proteins that, and then produce these exosomes that trigger that whole process. And it's a whole, slow process over time. Um, you know, and of course this disease is, for example, they are sucked over, you have those numbers on the, on the, um, frequencies of different reactions, but one of them is this facial palsy, mm. which is like over a thousand, it's like 1200 cases of facial palsy in the United States. Yes. <clears throat> yeah, this that's on the um, lower yep. right there, 1000 in the vaccine adverse event reporting system in the United States. Uh, Bell's palsy is, uh, is interesting because I know for a fact that there was a study on, on, on Parkinson's people and they found that something like 200 Parkinson's patients who, um, they, they looked at whether they had ever had Bell's palsy and they got 200 age and gender matched controls to compare them with. And they had six cases out of 200 where they had had Bell's palsy sometime in the past 
and zero cases among the controls. So clearly Bell's palsy is a precursor to Parkinson's disease wow. and Bell's palsy is caused by these. And I think it's probably through this mechanism of the prion protein getting transmitted up the vagus nerve into that facial area. You get the facial nerves are reacting to this toxic toxic uh, protein. That prion protein is toxic. And that's one, another thing they've shown. And we talked about that in our paper articles that have shown it's toxic all by itself. You don't need the virus to make the toxicity. And I actually think it's more toxic than the virus because they've designed the protein. They've changed the the protein code so that it has these two proline uh, residues at a critical spot at the place where it's supposed to fuse with the cell. They did this intentionally so it couldn't fuse, which what that means is it sticks around. It it attaches to these ACE, the protein itself attaches to the ACE2 receptor. It doesn't need the virus to do that. That is the part of the virus that attaches to the ACE2 receptor. Normally, it then reshapes into this spear that can go right into the membrane in order to deliver the contents. But of course, there's no contents. This is just a pure spike protein. And furthermore, it can't change its shape because of those two prolines. That's been designed, engineered to, to be like that. So it sticks to the ACE2 receptor and disables it. And when you disable the ACE2 receptor, you get a whole bunch of other problems because in the lungs, you get, uh, you'll get um, hypertension, pulmonary hypertension, which is linked to heart failure and also is a, is a risk factor for stroke. And so we're seeing you know, heart problems and stroke, all these problems, we're seeing them as reactions to the vaccine. Um, but that prion protein then ultimately is a seed for that spike protein is ultimately a seed for prion disease. And this is the part that really, really worries me. It's going to start out with it in the spleen. And that's where Parkinson starts. It can spend a long time in the spleen, years actually, or even decades before it actually becomes symptomatic in the brain. It it sort of festers. And if if you fester faster, then your your disease shows up sooner. So what I'm suspecting 20 years from now, you know, we may have an epidemic in Parkinson's disease among younger and younger people, and we won't have any clue as to what's caused it. And if we keep on getting these these vaccines every year, each time we get it, we're a little closer, we bring our our date a little closer to the present as to when we're going to come down with this Parkinson's disease. Yes. So we're basically causing an epidemic in uh, these awful neurodegenerative diseases um, many years from now that, that, of course, the vaccine industry will turn a blind eye. They'll, they'll make sure not to see the signal. You know, and who's going to notice this so many years in between? How are you going to know that that vaccine caused this problem? Yep. We don't know for sure, obviously. And they won't, won't try to prove it because they won't want us to know. And it'll be another, <clears throat> um, a, you know, place of profit for the pharmaceutical industry in treating these effects and, and having these people. But just like autism, who is going to pay the price for this? We're not going to have enough functioning people to actually take care of those who we've harmed. There is another thing I'd like to speak with you about, and I don't know if this is just a total coincidence, but you mentioned in the paper, and I've read this also, that a lot of the people are, you know, there's an increase in shingles being reported, which is a herpes infection after the shot. Now, I get cold sores maybe once every 10 years if I'm in Mm. the sun for a long period of time. I and three other women that I know about who have not had the shot have just in the last week developed cold sores. I have not been in the sun. It's winter here. And that is a different herpes infection. It's herpes simplex. And I'm just wondering, I've, I've never had the chicken pox, so I can't get shingles. But is this possibly another way of of the 
you know, shedding taking place or transmission, um, as some people are calling it. Is this possibly related to that as well? I don't know, but that's that's really really interesting, and I didn't know about the, that connection. I've been reading about all these um, these viruses. There's the herpes and, and also the varicella, which is the shingles, yes, and different forms of herpes. All these different viruses that many of us harbor. And, and usually it's a latent virus is sitting there not really causing any trouble. And, you know, people yeah. get shingles when they're under stress. Um, and these and these vaccines are and I looked and they've actually they've got cases. There's a few cases where they report cold sores um, okay. in, the, in the vaccine event, uh, adverse event reporting system. But most people wouldn't even report that. Right. If they got a cold sore, they yeah. would probably think nothing of it. Probably wasn't related to the vaccine. They wouldn't bother to report it. So I suspect many people may be getting it and not reporting it. And then it's very interesting, this level of indirect that you're reporting from personal experience, which is amazing. And this is also connects up to this whole Parkinson's thing because the facial palsy, they believe these viruses, both the varicella and the herpes are, um, are causal in facial palsy, in, in this Bell's palsy, which we have those 1200 cases. Right. And, um, and Bell's palsy, as I mentioned, is a risk factor for Parkinson's disease. And there's also a connection to autism because if a woman gets is they had a study where they showed that women who had herpes diagnosis during pregnancy, active infection of herpes during pregnancy had a twofold increased risk to having a child with autism. So this connects the herpes to the autism and also the autistic kids have a very, there's a study I found on, uh, there aren't very many older autistic people because it's a child, you know, it's a disease of the present. Oh, come on. It's but they always found been a here. number of autistic, <laughs> 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 they had a number of autistic people that were over the age of 39 and they just looked at them as a group and found that a third of them would, would meet the requirements for Parkinson's disease. They had the characteristic features of Parkinson's, wow. one third of these autistic people over 39 years old. So you've got the autism, the Parkinson's, the Bell's palsy, and the herpes all connected together. And the vaccine is inducing that because it's distracting the immune cells towards this other direction, which, you know, you have this kind of immune balance, um, T1, T2 it, uh, immune balance that is being upset because they're forcing you into a mode that's in this uh, TH1 mode yes. where you have a, a TNF alpha and excess TNF alpha. These are all these different cytokines that are produced in response to immune. You know, it's a really, really complicated system. It's very hard to figure out the immune system. But when you over, when the immune cells overproduce TNF alpha, it interferes with their ability to make inter interferon alpha, which is what keeps those herpes and varicella at bay. It keeps them in a, in a latent form. Right. So when you no longer making the interferon alpha, those guys cut loose and cause symptoms. And then those symptoms can lead down the road to nasty things like Parkinson's or autism in the offspring. So it's a really um, scary thing. Again, it takes time. I mean, they're lucky that it takes time for these things to develop because that's how you don't connect the dots. It's yeah. hard for people to realize that the vaccine is what caused their problem 10 years, 20 years later. But even immediate reactions were being told in many cases that there's no connection between the reaction and the shot that was given. I want you to know that I'm getting a lot of comments from people. Zoe Maxted, my two-year-old got a cold sore on his lip after a visit with a friend who I didn't know had had the shot. He never, ever had wow. one before until following this visit. Um, and there's a few people reporting this, um, that they got cold sores. I get a cold sore when I get hot and then cool down. And 
yes, I had chickenpox despite being vaccinated against it as a child. Um, there are, you know, more people saying this. It's interesting. Uh, it, it's just I would never have made the connection if I hadn't seen these other three women who all had very obvious cold sores. And I asked them if they had gotten the shot and none of them had, but it is possible. And it's possible that they were exposed to someone who had, and it doesn't seem like there's any way of protecting ourselves from that kind of exposure because who knows how long you have to be with someone who's had that shot before you can be affected by it. Um, and it's something it's probably more important to wear face masks now than it was before <laughs> because you've got all those e emissions from the vaccinated people. <laughs> Except will a face mask actually filter out something the size of a virus? I know. Yeah, probably not. Right. So. I don't. I don't actually think the face masks are very are masks are very useful. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So. Um, I want to talk to you about um, pathogenic priming after the COVID shots, because this is another issue. I've spoken with James Lyons-Weiler in the past, and he talked about this um, with this particular virus, with the SARS viruses in general, um, pathogenic priming uh, is, is one, of the, one of the issues that we know can possibly occur and is why we've never had uh, a vaccine released against any SARS virus. So can you talk to that a little bit? Um, yes, and that, and that is actually something that is, I think, poorly understood. Certainly, I have a hard time understanding exactly how it happens, but I have a feeling it has to do with a weak immune system mm -hmm. and um, a weak innate immune system. But it's when the, the virus, the vaccine actually produces antibodies, but those are not antibodies that, that keep the, um, that, that can cause, allow you to clear the virus. They're actually antibodies that allow you to make it worse. They, they enable the virus to, to get into the cells and to spread. They do the opposite of what they're supposed to do. And they found that out experimentally, I think in an experimental study in, in Southeast Asia, uh, I forget which country, maybe the Philippines, With where the they released a, a vaccine. In, mm. I think so. Yes. Mm. And that was uh, and it misfired in a, in a miserable way. And they were so surprised. And they'd seen it also in animal studies. So they should have known better because it was a study on ferrets that showed exactly that happening. Mm. And um, where I think it's because the immune cells are so um, damaged by toxic chemicals that they don't respond. They, they're, you're, they're able to tag the, the virus, but they're not able to clear it. And the tagging actually makes it easier somehow for the virus to get in. It's, and it causes a more inflammatory response. And it ends up being uh, very, very toxic because, you know, the virus itself the, what kills people, the people who get um, hurt by the virus and get this awful, you know, lung uh, inflammation, they can't breathe. Um, I think those are people who have a weak innate immune system. The virus just goes wild because the immune cells can't clear it. And then um, the virus induces this response. It, cytokine storm is what it's called, where there's so many. Um, it, basically, the immune cells are shooting guns all over the place randomly. They're so you know, panicked because they can't clear this virus and they end up damaging the lung tissue. And that's, um, that's been really reported in many papers that the real problem with the damage that's done with this virus is the overactive, overzealous immune system. So if you make the immune system overzealous by virtue of those vaccines, you make it easier for that cytokine storm to take place because you're geared up for it you just cause even more damage than um, if you hadn't had the vaccine. And we don't know yet for sure whether that, that's going to happen with this, um, with this, these particular va vaccines, but there's certainly precedent for it. Mm. Um, and of course, the other problem is, is the, um, 
vaccines causing uh, uh, the virus to adapt, <coughs> excuse me, so that the virus produces mutants that are <coughs> no longer matched to the vaccine, to the particular spike protein in the vaccine. And I think this is very clearly going to happen. It's already been shown. We talked in our paper about a case of a person in the UK who had um, cancer. He was being treated with immune suppressant drugs. So he clearly had a very suppressed immune system. He caught COVID, he was in the hospital. And for 101 days, he was in the hospital and shedding virus the whole time. <clears throat> they gave him antibodies, excuse me, I've got a <clears throat> frog in my throat. No worries. They gave him antibodies from other people who had recovered from the, from the virus. Um, and those antibodies didn't work. But what they did was they allowed the, vac uh, the virus to see the antibodies and to readjust its spike protein so it could no longer match the antibodies. The virus was so hardy, it mutated in the course of those 100 days. And then they showed at the end of uh, his, when he died at 101 days, the version of the virus that he had, um, had 12 mutations, I think, in the spike protein. And was uh, in and there was therefore insensitive to the antibodies that he'd been given. So when you think about that as a person who's given antibodies from someone else who's recovered, it's very similar to a person who's been forced to make antibodies by the vaccine. And yeah. and this is what's happening with these immune compromised people. There was a study that showed, in fact, it doesn't usually work with them. I think in the first vaccine, they saw 17% of these immune compromised people actually produced antibodies at all. So the other ones were sort of so their immune system was so bad they couldn't produce antibodies. But the ones who produce it are the dangerous ones because those are the ones who are going to get the infection but not be able to clear it and end up producing these, these variants. And then they gave them a second shot. And with the second shot, something like 56% of them were able to produce antibodies, which is even worse because now you've got a larger population of people who have been forced to make antibodies that they really can't use because yeah. their immune system is so sick. And that's going to allow all these mutants to take place. So we're going to maybe see a... A period of time when things are looking good, but I'm predicting that we're going to have all these variant strains coming out that are resistant to the um, to the antibodies that were forced by the vaccine. And now they're going to tell us, you know, come September, October, I don't know, they're going to say, oh, we've got this great new version of the of the vaccine. It's got these 14 different variants in there, right? So we're going to have some really fancy vaccines with lots of different versions of the spike protein in them. And we're going to have to roll up our sleeves and go another round of two shots. I mean, how many times are we going to be willing to do this before we end up with Parkinson's disease? I don't know. And this is not a unique situation. With whooping <clears throat> cough, we've seen this exact same thing happen, where the whooping cough strain that circulates is completely different <clears throat> from the wild strain because of the over-vaccination, because of mutations caused by more and more people getting the whooping cough vaccine and becoming resistant to the actual strain that's in the shot. And, you know, now we're seeing more and more people who are fully vaccinated getting whooping cough. We see that with measles. We see that with mumps. It's not surprising we'd see it with this as well. What is surprising, I guess, is the speed with which um, we are seeing these changes happening. But I can't think of any other shot that has ever been targeting every single man, woman, and now child in the world. Oh, it's so frightening. And the more people who are given this, the more chances there will be of the reassortment or the, the mutations in the actual virus. Luc Montagnier, you sent me a link to something where he said that um, the vaccine itself is causing 
these mutations and nobody is listening. Nobody is listening to this. They are saying that it is actually a sign of success that these people are developing these antibodies where the fact is that it's not. It's a sign of very possible danger in the future. So, um, yeah, science is, is not science anymore, sadly. Um, it's, it's become more like a superstition or a religion. Um, <laughs> I wanted to, uh, to show you this slide. This is again from VAERS, and this is from, I think, the 7th of May. Uh, these are the number of deaths. This is just deaths following the COVID shot. Um, the top slide, the, sorry, the top graph is the number of deaths for all ages. The bottom one is the deaths for people aged greater than or equal to 70 years. And the vast majority of the deaths are occurring before uh, the third day following the shot. Is this significant, do you think, this, this sort of information? Well, yeah. I mean, I think any time you get the vaccine and you die the next day, you have to think that that's an extremely strong indicator the vaccine caused your death. Um, I think it's a little bit hard to use this data um, uh, intelligently because it, you know, as the death, as the period between the vaccine and the death lengthens, people are less um, confident that the vaccine caused their death, so they're going to report it when it happens right after the vaccine. I think the more interesting data was the report that came out of Israel. Um, it was it was American doctors who had um, someone among them had done a really critical analysis of this uh, Israel because Israel is the most vaccinated country in the world I think well maybe not quite the most vaccinated very yeah. high, heavily vaccinated country yeah. and um, and they had very high mortality rates among the people who got the vaccine within the first couple of weeks after the vaccine and what they did with this article was to argue that if just to compensate for the excess deaths that occurred in that window right after the vaccine you would have to go out two or three years into the future and have a perfect response to the vaccine, you know, to protect you 100% from COVID in order to break, break even. In other words, because there's so much damage done right after the vaccine. And the other thing is the vaccine actually makes you much more susceptible to COVID in those first few days before you've actually managed to make those antibodies. It takes you some time to make antibodies. So in that first window right after the vaccine, you're actually more susceptible to COVID than people who, um, who didn't get the vaccine. And that was shown, there have been several cases I've been following of various nursing homes, both in America and also in Europe, where they they came in, they vaccinated the, most of the population of the nursing home. And then that nursing home became infected with COVID and, and many people died, you know, very high death rate from COVID in that short period right after the vaccine before they'd had a chance to develop antibodies. So you're, you're, it's very dangerous right after you've gotten the vaccine with respect to picking up COVID. And, and that makes sense, too, because the endpoint that they were studying when they actually tested this shot was just reduction of symptoms, not reduction of risk of infection or risk of transmission to others. So where is the benefit in using this shot if we can't even say it's going to reduce your risk of getting the illness or making it someone else near you sick from it? It doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, and then making sure that we know that we have to keep on wearing our face masks, even though we're fully vaccinated, and um, which really makes you realize they don't think it's actually giving you real protection. That's right. And so it, you have to wonder why you're getting this this vaccine if that's the case.
And yet in Australia, again, if I can um, digress here, um, the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, has just said that he's going to try and make it so that you cannot cross state borders. So you can't go from New South Wales into wow. Queensland unless you show that you're fully vaccinated against COVID. That's just shocking. It is. And it's unconstitutional because our constitution is very clear about not stopping people from traveling within the country. We already can't come in from overseas, but not being able to travel within the country is insane. And uh, yeah, it's pretty crazy. It's very fortunate that it's unconstitutional because you can challenge it, right? <laughs> Fingers crossed. And we are going to be mounting legal challenges in the very near future. Um, I do want to show you again, just while we're on Australia, um, these are the reactions that have been reported up until between the 22nd of February and the 9th of May. So a total of 76 days. Uh, there have been 17,238 reactions and one thing they've got here is the reporting rates per 1,000 doses by jurisdiction. Victoria, 10 in 1,000, so 1 in 100, basically, um, are, are reacting to these shots. And it goes from 4.4 in WA, Western Australia, to um, that 10, which is the highest. Um, the figure that they have for the total number of doses administered is 2.6 million, but that's a lie. Um, and that is because that is the number of doses that have been distributed, not the number of doses that have been administered. A lot of doses are getting thrown away. And if we were to actually have the figure on doses administered, that would make that reaction rate far higher. And our Therapeutic Goods Administration is holding up all reaction reports and not uh, publishing anything about these reactions uh, they, they said for three months, but it's already three months, and we're just not going to be getting them, I think. I think they're just going to keep holding them up. So, you know, what do you think about the fact that we are seeing such high rates of reported reactions when, just like the U.S., we're only getting about 1% of reports uh, in Australia? Um, what do you think the actual number I mean this is I'm asking you to take a guess but what do you think the I know actual percentage is <laughs> well that that's the question right and yeah. I and I think also because they're telling us oh you know you can expect to be sick don't worry if you have a fever don't worry if you you know have all these different problems um, mm -hmm. people don't report it right they say, oh well this is normal so so we're not seeing a lot of reactions just because people are being trained to expect to be sick for a few days like you've got the flu when you get the vaccine mm -hmm. And, the, and I've heard that same number of people are saying 1% or maybe up to 10% most. And I'm sure it's not 10% because I know many, many people aren't aware of the vaccine adverse event reporting system here. I'm thank, thank God it exists. Um, they they poo-poo it. I mean, they say, well, that system is not reliable because anybody can report and blah, blah, blah. They have ways of just dismissing this incredible evidence. I really like that that database. And I've done a lot of studies on it for various other vaccines. That's how I discovered that autism is linked to the MMR vaccine mm. uh, through that database just by looking at um, statistical correlations. And, um, but they, uh, but you, you know, it's very hard to get a paper published when you have vaccine adverse event reporting system as your reference, because they say that system is not reliable, which is really, really frustrating because it's the only thing really we have to help us figure out what these vaccines are doing. And if it's not reliable, yeah, why aren't they looking at another system that is? Why aren't they going to right. an actual um, active reporting system instead of passive reporting? And we know why, because they don't want to find out. 
this is the other frustrating thing about the vaxxed on vax studies, you know, and I, I've been, everyone's been, I mean, my, among my community are saying we need a vaxxed on vax study. And of course, the government is never willing to, to, to do that, even though they very much could. You, could. you have a lot of opportunities to do that sort of study. And then individuals are, are doing it and re reporting and finding incredible differences in the number of autoimmune diseases. I mean, that's another one we didn't talk about with respect to this vaccine, yes. but vaccines cause autoimmune disease and uh, many different childhood diseases. We have so much, so many issues with autoimmunity today among our children, and they're getting so many more vaccines than they used to. When I was a child, we got basically just a couple. Mm. And even my kids didn't get anywhere near as many vaccines as kids are getting today, because my kids were grown up by the 1986 window when that was when we passed our law that said that the industry was completely exonerated from any damages yeah. in 1986. All the burden went to the government and people had to report their injuries to the government and go through a sort of special court, vaccine court, which was, uh, you know, very much, uh, very, very hard to win. So you, you could, you know, to get damages, to get rewards for that. Yep. So it's been, uh, and after 1986, they just greatly increased the number of vaccines that they piled onto these kids. And now, you know, the studies are showing dramatic differences in the health. A new study just came out uh, and that was James, Weiler, he probably talked to you about that. James Lyons Weiler, yes, the we paper that he wrote to together that. with. Yeah, our organization. Yeah, that was so amazing. Yeah. And that was a clever study because they were just looking at hospital visits for illness as opposed to well baby visits, which are typically for vaccines, mm -hmm. you know, just whenever the child went to the doctor's office because of some kind of a illness. And it was just way, way more among the vaccinated kids compared to the unvaccinated ones. Yep. So we are really, really damaging our, our, uh, our health with these vaccines. I, I've, I've, I slowly, you know, changed my opinion about vaccines over time. The more I looked, the more I got convinced that that there, I couldn't find at some at one point. Finally, I couldn't find a vaccine. I would say, yes, that one we should get. I couldn't find one. And at this point, I think they're all they're doing more harm than good. This is my current opinion. It took me a long time to get to that point. But the more I looked, the more I found bad news. And I just think it's not um, it, the whole concept is flawed. Uh, yes. Vaccination is a way to protect from disease. You really need to work on immune strength and you need to eat a certified organic diet, whole foods, out in the sunlight, very, very simple things you can do to boost your health and just get enough physical exercise. I mean, these are all important ways to keep yourself healthy. Stay away from toxic chemicals. Don't put things on your skin, you know, cosmetics. I mean, there's just all kinds of ways you can protect yourself. Don't try to kill the weeds in your yard with Roundup, <laughs> you know. Yep. If you just live a, a wholesome life, you'll have a strong immune system and you won't get sick. I mean, I basically never catch even a cold. I'm My immune system is so strong that it doesn't, COVID doesn't worry me. But I'm worried about these vaccines because they're so abnormal. And isn't it funny that the government and the medical community just never mentions any other way to protect yourself other than a vaccine? Right. And it's as if we don't even have an immune system. It doesn't really, it doesn't exist, you know, because they, there's no way that we can actually protect ourselves from this or any other infection as far as they're concerned. Um, and you talk about that in your study about those who have a strong immune system clear the virus without the development of antibodies. So that antibody 
antibody is like a last resort uh, for our immune right. system. And, and that if they are then injected, even if they have a strong immune system, um, they can have an excessive antibody production that can lead to problems they never would have faced if they had just gotten the infection naturally. And, uh, you know, right, and that's the thing with this prion protein. I mean, with this, uh, it is a prion protein, but the uh, spike protein has a number of different. I'm sure James Weiler talked about that with mm, you. Uh, the spike protein has a number of segments in it that are very similar to segments in all kinds of human proteins that are linked to all kinds of autoimmune diseases, and that is the classic case of. Uh, of molecular mimicry mm. causing antibodies to one protein to become autoantibodies that attack yourself and cause things like multiple sclerosis and Sjogren's and Hashimoto's uh, thyroiditis and um, celiac disease, all these immune diseases, autoimmune diseases um, will be uh, aggravated and I think increased in, in prevalence as a consequence of this, this, these antibodies to the spike yeah. protein. And we were seeing that already before this shot came out, and we're probably going to see an exponential growth in that. And speaking of exponential growth, as long as I'm asking you, um, you were discussing in the Vaxxed One documentary about um, autism in children, and you said by, I think by 2032, that we were going to have one child in two who was autistic and 80% of all boys. Are you still... Um, are you still predicting that sort of an increase in autism in the U.S.? I haven't seen any progress because we're just continuing to use lots and lots of glyphosate and continuing to give the kids lots and lots of vaccines. And now if we add on this COVID vaccine, I feel pretty confident it's going to make autism worse. So I think it's probably correct. I mean, it, it's, a, uh, it's a projection of the exponential growth of autism over the past two decades into the future. And it, and what I'm saying is that children born, you have to be careful to say it's the children born in 2032 mm. will end up on the spectrum. That gives you an extra 12 years because the numbers we're seeing right now are for 12 year olds. And that's one thing people don't realize. We say, oh, we have an autism rate of one in 54, which is what is supposedly the, the rate at this point today. Mm. And uh, one in 54 in 12 year olds. So when you put, have to go right. back to, you give yourself an extra 12 years. So when you say 1932, 2032, yep. you're talking about third, 2044, the diagnosis 2044 of one and two. And I think that's where we're headed if we just keep doing what we're doing. That's it will not be tenable. It isn't already. There are um, the Australian government, again, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but the Australian government said that they are going to be building six schools every year for the next, I think, 10 years. In, in one in every state for children who are either autistic or have a behavioral issue um, and a learning difficulty issue. So we're going to need that many new schools in Australia over the next 10 years. It's an admission that our children's brains have been damaged and uh, it is pretty amazing that we're looking at how to teach these children, but we're not looking at what caused this problem in the first place. But parents know. Parents do know. It's the government and the medical community that's in denial. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty Yeah, crazy. it amazes me that our government doesn't, um, doesn't focus on this at all. They never even mention autism. You know, it's just like not a problem as far as they're concerned, even though it's, it's going to ruin our society. I mean, we have all these cases now that are being maintained by their parents 
And when these kids age out of childhood and then they're adults with autism, we won't know what to do with them. We're already finding no place to put these adult autistic, you know, yeah. autistics that are growing up from that first wave. And it's just going to be every year more and more people aging out of childhood of the childhood um, services, you know. Yep. COVID virus is a, an, an international disaster and a pandemic, but one child in 54 in the United States on the autistic right. spectrum is not. And that is insane. That is absolutely insane. It's and just... Australia has a higher rate than the United States. But we actually really? give, wow. we give two MMRs. We give one at 12 months and one at wow. 15 months. So, um, Oh, my goodness. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah, wow, so, I did not know that. Yeah, our schedule is that's different. so crazy. Wow. You it need is. to stop that. I know. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I would like to speak with you briefly before we finish up. You've been a wealth of information. And everyone who's watching this, there are a whole series of links to uh, Dr. Seneff's paper and all the links that she sent me, as well as a, an, a very good interview that she just did with um, Dr. Mercola. And there is a great summary of the information there that is fantastic for anybody to read. I will make sure that all those links are on the AVN website tomorrow, BitChute, Brighteon, and Rumble are channels there. So everybody will have that information. You have just finished writing a new book um, called mm -hmm. Toxic, Toxic Harvest. What's it called? I've got the cover here. Toxic there, Legacy. Here <laughs> yeah, Toxic Legacy. And, how do I get that right? Yeah, that's all right. I've actually to find out how to do here, that. And let me put you in yeah, the okay. screenshot. There we go. And get rid of me. There we go. Toxic <laughs> Legacy. And that's coming out on July 22nd. We have already ordered it for sale. July in 1. Our July 1. Oh, I thought it said it may be July 22nd in Australia. Okay. We may get it oh, in our maybe. shop okay. before Amazon and the other companies in Australia because I've already ordered it from our American supplier. So we may get it sooner, but we will have this in here. Um, and it's been it's been compared with um, with sorry, I'm trying to think of Rachel Carson's book, Silent Rachel, Spring. Rachel Carson. Oh, yeah, yes, Silent uh, Spring, which was a book that changed the world for so many people, uh, talking about DDT and the use of many other toxins in the environment. Uh, and this is all about glyphosate. So talk to us a little bit about what you have found regarding glyphosate and its effect on the world and its pervasiveness in the world. Yes, yeah, so, well, it's, it's a big story, and my book talks a lot about it. And I, I think in the book, I focus on its mechanism of toxicity, which I believe is happening, and which is I'm getting enormous pushback. So the, um, you know, the experts are all saying it's not possible. And I'm saying this is what's happening, because that's how you can explain. And this is the right, this is the ability for the it's a glycine molecule, and it has extra material stuck onto its nitrogen atom. I believe it's getting into proteins by mistake in place of glycine certain proteins in particular, and those particular proteins are um, are shown to, uh, to cause the de defects in those proteins are connected to many diseases that are going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. So it's a giant puzzle that I put together, and, um, and I explain the science underneath why glyphosate would cause the things that it appears to be causing. And, um, and the, all these um, perfect correlations are just stunning. You know, and this is the work that Nancy Swanson did, where she and, she, she and I collaborated on a number of papers where we showed all these uh, 
including autism, autism going up exactly in step with the rise in glyphosate usage. It's a perfect match. If you look at autism in first grade compared to glyphosate usage over the previous four years, oh, yeah. you get two curves that coincide over time. And, and to say that that's just correlation and not causation, I think is absolutely foolish. If you see that kind of stunning correlation, you have to look for the underlying causative mechanism. So I talk a lot about autism and I explain exactly how glyphosate is causing the things that are causing autism. So it's a big um there's a lot of, I tried to make it, um, I worked hard to make it more accessible to people who don't have a biology background. So it's, mm -hmm. um, and tried to give a lot of background. So you'll learn a lot of biology by reading the book as well. And it talks about individual diseases, um, you know, chapters, one chapter on the liver and one on the immune system, where I go into in detail to how glyphosate wrecks the innate immunity and causes an overactive, uh, adapted, uh, adaptive immune system, which is what these vaccines are also forcing to happen. Yes, and I think it's Corvelva that actually tested several vaccines and found that they were contaminated with glyphosate as well. So you're not just getting it in your food, you're also getting it injected via vaccines uh, where your body... Yeah, it wasn't Corvelva, it. it was... Um, it, it was um, uh, Anthony Samsel and Zen Honeycutt, two Americans, right. independently tested about the same time. They tested a number of different vaccines. It was quite fascinating. They found a consistent story that it was present in the live virus vaccines, but not in the vi vaccines that were based on sort of you know protein segments and whatnot. The, the vaccines that were based on live viruses were the ones that had the glyphosate. And the MMR in particular had significantly more glyphosate than any other vaccine. And I think that is a serious aspect of why MMR is connected to autism because mm. you're injecting the glyphosate along with all the toxic, you know, what's in the MMR vaccine the combination is very damaging uh, to the brain. It's insane. Um, Gary is asking, can I have the details regarding the glyphosate book? I'll just put that up on the screen again. It's called Toxic Legacy, and it's being uh, published in the United States on July 1st. Um, Amazon Australia is saying the 22nd, but we should have it here before that. So um, I do recommend everyone. This is such a fascinating and frightening subject uh, that people really need to look at this. And, and one thing that really amazes me, the government is always saying, government, it doesn't matter where you are in Australia and the United States, that they are looking out for our health. They are the ones <laughs> who are keeping us healthy. And yet they are the ones who approved all of these toxic chemicals that are in our environments and in our food and being injected into us. And they are not saying a darn thing about using and eating organic food, growing things organically, um, not covering ourselves in toxic chemicals. These are the ways, as you mentioned, that we keep healthy and the government's not even mentioning them. They don't get a look in. Um, the government just wants us to vaccinate, medicate and fluoridate and none of that will uh, induce health in anyone, not in us, not in animals, not in anyone. So, um, yeah, a lot of people are saying they can't wait to buy that book, and I can't either. I can't wait to read it. Um, so it's really, really good. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, I'm just trying to see if there are any other questions before we finish up. Is there anything that we haven't covered? Oh, I just want to say this one quote. I copied this um, from the review of your book, Glyphosate is a train wreck for the immune system. I just think that is the best quote. And it's so true. It is so true um, about, uh, you know, what, what the effect of glyphosate is on the immune system of people. Um, yeah, and 
I think I've covered all the questions that I had, but is there anything else that you would like to speak about that we haven't covered yet? I just want to thank you for doing this, and I want to encourage the listeners to do everything they can to spread the word, obviously to live the life that they should be living that will keep them healthy and happy, and to encourage all their friends, all their family, uh, all their network, you know, do everything they can to spread the word about uh, the situation we're in, because it's dire. I think if we don't change our ways, it may already be too late. Uh, it's a grim future for humans if we continue on this path. It's just really, really grim. And we need to fight it with all our might to try to stop this, this train wreck. That's right. This is the hill we have to make our final stand on. And, and you're right. We need to spread the word. We have people that we love who are taking these shots and doing all the wrong things. And we need to at least share the information with them. Uh, the government's not going to save us. We have to save ourselves. So, Stephanie, exactly. thank you so, so much for coming on. You have been uh, just an incredible wealth of knowledge. And uh, I can't wait for your book to come out. And uh, as I said before, we will share all of the links on the upload when we put it up tomorrow on our website. So I hope you have a wonderful day. <laughs> thank you for getting up so early in the morning for <laughs> us. And <laughs> Okay, and I will speak with you later. <laughs> Thanks, all right. everyone. Thank from you so under much for having wire. me. No worries. Good night, all. Thank you. Bye bye. See you.